0: So welcome to Vegetable Beat. Today is September 1st. It is our very last episode of the 2021 season. So thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Natalie Hoydel from the University of Minnesota Extension. And I am here today with three different researchers who work at least spend some of their time, if not all of their time, on broccoli. And I'm really excited about this conversation. I love talking about broccoli. So we're going to talk about some ongoing projects and just kind of a recap of what we've been learning over the summer, maybe prior years leading up to this summer. So I am joined by Babesh Dutta from the University of Georgia, Sue Shufrelli from the University of Massachusetts, and Thomas Bjorkman from now. So we're going to be talking about broccoli diseases, insects, breeding for climate change, and organic management strategies. So with that, let's do some quick introductions. I would love each of you to just go around and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your connections to broccoli. So Sue, you're the first one on my screen. Why don't you go first? So
1: my name's Sue Shoyfoy. I'm with UMass Extension. And let's see, I started working on diseases of brassicas as part of my master's research at Cornell back in 2011. And I've been working on disease management in brassicas ever since then. And over the last three or so years, part of a project with some other folks around the Northeast
0: Managing insect pests and broccoli. All right, thanks. How about
2: Thomas? Yeah, I'm Thomas Bjorkman. I'm a professor in the horticulture department at Cornell, based at Cornell Agritech in Geneva. And I've been working on broccoli development and how temperature affects broccoli uh, since the mid 90s or so. But for the last 10 or 11 years, I've been leading the Eastern Broccoli Project, which has been a big project with a lot of people and big goals and making broccoli production in the East actually a viable thing. And that has involved, among other things, developing new varieties, which is, I think, what I'm mostly here for today. But we've been looking at marketing channels as well. I'm here in my office, but as soon as we're done, I'm gonna go out with some seed company people and stomp around our research trials, trying to get them to put better varieties on the market.
0: Last but not least,
3: Babesh. Well, I'm Babesh Dara. I'm a vegetable extension specialist and associate professor at University of Georgia. I've been working in broccoli since 2016, and being a trained bacteriologist, I was focusing first on black rot. But since 16, we are seeing increasing trend of alternaria in this part, in in this neck of the woods. So I repurposed my focus on alternaria, head blight, and rot. And right now, I'm leading an SCRI national multi-state project, finding a solution for this problem.
0: All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. And I'll just say we're also working on broccoli in Minnesota. Mostly Black Rot and Alternaria. I might interject a little bit, but I think I'll leave the conversation mostly up to you three. So, why don't we start back with Babesh again? I'm wondering if you can just give us a little bit more information about Alternaria and Black Rot and some of the trends you're seeing or some of the work that you're doing in this new Alternaria project.
3: Thanks. I'll, I'll be glad to. So, Black Rot. It's a disease which is endemic to wherever you grow brassicas. Especially here in hot and humid climate of Georgia, we see black rot whenever we grow broccoli and brassicas. It is pretty much during mid-fall and late spring. So we grow broccoli in two different seasons, mid-fall to first frost and then also in spring. But the severity is much more pronounced in fall crops. The other thing uh, that makes this thing worse is most of the crops are grown on the bare ground rather rather than on plastic. That also creates the macro environment for the disease spread. And this also creates a macro environment for not only for black rot, but also for alternaria. The other aspect of uh, black rot and alternaria is, is uh, the weeds. We have seen the black rot survives on some of these brassica weeds. And these brassica weeds can, uh, can also harbor uh, these dual, these two pathogens together. Alternaria symptomatically and, and, campus risk, campestris campestris asymptomatically. Since I mentioned in my introduction since 2016, I've been seeing an increasing trend of more alternaria and more crop losses due to alternaria in Georgia than blackrock. So that made me to repurpose on most of my brassica efforts towards alternaria. Based on early survey work which we did, we wanted to see what kind of species we are looking at or if the fungicides which are growers traditionally use, they work or not. We found that the alternaria species which we're dealing with might be different than what we dealt with earlier. And when we looked at the fungicide sensitivity of some of the commonly used fungicides of FRAC group 11, which are QOIs, we found that based on field uh, lab assays, there seems to be indications of resistance development. And most of our growers rely on these QOIs to manage alternaria. And that's why we think there was a, a lot of incidences of crop losses. So in this project, we have long-term goals. This is actually a multi-state effort from the East Coast that involves Georgia, Virginia, New York, and we also have Nebraska as, as an offshoot, but now it's, we have repurposed it to Connecticut. So what we're going to do in this project, we're going to utilize uh, genomics, population genetics, and fun cell resistance profiling. to characterize population structure and develop a diagnostic tools for alternaria that, that are responsible for alternaria head blight. And the second part of the project, which is more applied, here we're going to examine if different sources of inoculum, for example, weeds, seeds and different cultural practices like your irrigation practices, or the nitrogen fertility, or choice of varieties, if they impact or if they contribute to alternate outbreaks and ultimate will develop management programs uh, that are environmentally and economically sustainable. And within these two objectives, we have extensions and economics integrated within these objectives. So we are in our first year of a project, and we just submitted our annual report. And I'll be glad to talk about the progress we made within the last 8 to 12 months. We did statewide surveys in commercial broccoli fields. Wherever we heard there is an outbreak, we went and we collected samples. We found that most of the outbreaks which you're seeing, especially in Georgia, is caused by alternaria brassicola. Although uh, we also see some of the alternarias like alternaria japonica. We also characterize these isolates uh, based on their ability to cause disease on different brassica hosts, not only broccoli, but also on kale, collard, and cabbage. We found that most of the Alternaria can cause diseases across the brassica hosts, but there's a difference in level of aggressiveness. But we have seen, kale and broccoli are highly susceptible to most of the alternating isolates, whereas cabbage do have some level of differences in terms of their tolerance. Nearly 70% of the isolates were highly aggressive, and cabbage were there 30% which are less aggressive. Whereas in broccoli and kale, nearly 99% of the isolates were highly aggressive, and less than 1% were less aggressive. Most of the alternaria isolates are highly aggressive on these two important hosts. The other aspect of this project is to look at the fungicide sensitivity and develop a marker to detect it. So, based on our preliminary assessments, we found that the known QOI mutations that we see in alternaria do not occur in these alternaria species. So, there's something novel that is going on where we are using our genomics approaches to find where is the mutation and how it's conferring this resistance. Apart from that, we also, in our second objective, we have put our trials of fertility, uh, varietal selection, irrigation, they're all in ground. New York is almost done with these trials, whereas Virginia and Georgia uh, has put these trials just last week, I think, and we'll be happy to give the progress report probably next season. So this is what we are doing. In, in addition to this, you also did some economics uh, grower survey and nearly 70% of our growers in the East Coast, they think that alternaria is a major issue and can be a limiting factor for the production compared to black rot.
0: Really interesting that you're seeing some changes in alternaria. I know in Minnesota as well. When I started this position a couple of years ago, all the growers were you have to work on black rot. This is the most important thing. And since we have started to work on black rat, altered area is now so much worse than black rat. Yeah. Different places, we're seeing that same trend. Looks like the two of you on the East Coast are nodding as well.
2: The more aggressive strains of Alternaria area have clearly spread, and it appears to have happened quickly. So the uh, epidemiological work that Avesh is working on is really important for finding out how did these strains end up spreading so quickly and what sets them apart. I think there there were known strains that were seemed to be hanging out on the coast of Virginia someplace for a long time that were resistant to some of the fungicides, but the transition this twenty sixteen twenty seventeen has been remarkable.
3: I agree with you. Our hypothesis is uh, since Alternaria is a known seed bone pathogen and more likely some of these resistant acylers is coming through the seeds and they're establishing in, in this region. And since Alternaria can also be on weeds, they may be overwintering or oversummering on these weeds and this may be a source of inoculum for our subsequent crops.
1: A lot of growers around here are interested in planting forage radish as a cover crop over the winter to deal with compaction, but are worried about the idea of introducing another brassica crop on their farm. One reason being that some of these pathogens might be like a green bridge for them. So do you know if forage radish is a host for black rot or alternaria?
3: Well, based on our survey, we we have seen Afrinistrum, which is... One of the relatives of the forage radish, it is a symptomatic host, but I don't know exactly your forage radish. I think all host hosts can be pathogenic and pathogenic and all, but the level of aggressiveness may differ. Even if they are not symptomatic hosts, they can harbor these areas and it can get as, as difficult.
0: Yeah, that's great to know. Why don't we, we, we can kind of come back to, so I think all of this ends up being connected. Sue, <laughs> so why don't you talk about some of your work with insects? Which I think we're learning, I think you may have told me this, you're finding that flea beetles can actually transmit alternaria?
1: Yeah, that was work that my grad school advisor, Helene Diller, did in the mid-90s, I think, showing these cool sort of SEM pictures of flea beetles covered in spores of alternaria and even black rot bacterial cells. That as they're jumping around in the field, they get covered in these cells and then they don't like to be dirty actually. And so their antennae are covered and they like clean their antennae in their mouth and concentrate black rot and alternaria in their mouth parts. And then they go feeding on these plants and can be pretty effective at spreading both diseases because of that. I think she also showed that flea beetles are eating the plants and they ingest some of the alternaria spores and the spores end up in their frass and are still infected afterwards. So yeah we think that the, the insect pests the direct damage they do of course is really important but there are other reasons to control them too to help reduce the spread of diseases. So we called the Brassica Pest Collaborative and it's me and researchers from New Hampshire, Connecticut, Long Island. And there's really like a lot of research that's happened as part of the project. So in a short amount of time, I don't know what's most interesting to hear about, but we've done some efficacy trials of new or organic insecticides and fungicides. Some of that work has been really helpful. Like, so for cabbage root maggot, sort of going chronologically. The first pest that we see in the spring, typically controlled with luresband, which has now been banned. We've been looking for alternatives to that for a long time. And there's some new insecticides in the diamide group that are really pretty effective on root maggot and are systemic in the plant. And so they offer protection against flea beetles and Caterpillars as well. So there's a few different products and formulations of those, but the soil-applied one is fairmark and that is very effective against cabbage root maggot. We also saw that in trust, the organic-approved spinosad product, when applied at least twice, can also be effective against root maggot, and that is now on the label for both direct-seeded and transplanted crops. So now organic growers also have a way to control root maggot besides row cover. The group on Long Island also did look at the insect netting that is now more widely available and basically like 100% effective against root maggot as well as flea beetle and a lot of the caterpillar pests too. The hard thing about it is just like managing it on a big scale. But for some growers, using the insect netting has become an important tool.
0: We're also doing some work with raw mulch, right?
1: Yeah. So that started as a project that was related to alternaria management. I thought if a primary source of spores is residues in the soil, maybe we could create like a physical barrier and reduce the amount of inoculum and rain splash by using mulches. And we didn't actually, it was like a very dry year and the alternaria pressure was very low. So I don't feel like I could say one way or the other if it really worked to reduce alternaria. But I did notice that the plants grown with mulch had much less fetal damage, just sort of anecdotally. But I thought no grower is going to mulch all of their brassicas. So I, I just kind of put it out of my mind. But I got enough questions about it over the year that we decided to look at it. So we set up an experiment compared. White mulch, black mulch, straw mulch, reflective silver, and some of the new like paper mulches, because they all impact the soil temperature. And one sort of thought was that if you had a mulch that would help cool the soil... know, brassicas are a cool season crop. They don't really like to be as hot as it gets in Massachusetts sometimes. So a cooling mulch might mean the plants were less stressed and, you know, maybe that is a way that the flea beetles are interacting. So one year we did it and we saw a really striking effect of the reflective silver mulch, which is the coolest of the mulches that we looked at. It it burns your eyes to look at it, but if you touch the mulch, it's, it's cool to the touch. So the plants grown on it in a warm part of the season were pretty vigorous. And in this trial, they had very little flea beetle damage compared to the other lots. And it even caused significant differences in yield but we repeated it a couple of times and weren't able to see the same effect with different brassica crops or at different times of the year. So again, sort of inconclusive and that reflective silver is fairly expensive. And for a lot of reasons, people might not want to use plastic mulch in their brassicas, but I think there are some benefits for sure, like um, reducing the rain splash, the water efficiency. Um, I do think there, the other mulches like white mulch and straw mulch also cool the soil and I think can contribute to sort of just healthier plants for brassicas grown during a hotter yeah fortunately we didn't see like a consistent result each year so it's a little hard to recommend that
0: strategy wholeheartedly there's a lot to follow up on with both of you but I want to go to Thomas first and just kind of ask I know you're looking at kind of big picture like making broccoli production work uh, in the northeast yeah um I'm curious if you can talk about just some of the the biggest challenges and some of what you're breeding for and if if that breeding has kind of been successful in addressing some of those challenges.
2: Yes, it has. So that makes it a good story. Uh, So the big challenge is that in the East, it really is too warm to grow broccoli well. It needs cool night temperatures to develop normally to make the flower buds if it doesn't get enough chilling hours, if we can call it that. The flower buds stay tiny and you don't have a marketable product. And historically, that just happened far too often to make broccoli a reasonable crop to raise. There is one county in the entire eastern United States that was cool enough to pull it off, and that's Aristo County, Maine. So there has been a significant broccoli industry right up on the Canadian border in the northernmost part of the east because it does stay cool at night there. Uh, but the rest of us don't have that. In order to get more of the year covered, those growers started growing in Florida in the wintertime. And there's a little corner of Florida that doesn't get the hurricanes quite as bad and doesn't get the cold spells quite as bad and doesn't get the hot spells quite as bad. And that's between Jacksonville and Daytona. They call it the Tri-County Agricultural Area, which isn't super helpful to anybody who's not from around there. There's quite a lot of winter production there. It doesn't quite cover the whole season, but that's where the temperatures have been permissive for raising broccoli. Um, if we're going to have real year-round production, which is required if you're going to have wholesale market access, we have to be producing in more states and more months. And so that's the challenge. So getting broccoli that is adapted to a higher temperature that requires fewer chilling hours or has a higher set point, something like that, is what we needed to do in order to have anything. And so we have public and private breeding programs that were involved with that. Of course, if you're going to buy the seed, they're going to come from a seed company, even if they use public germplasm in producing it. Uh, Universities are not going to be selling vegetable seed. (laughs) We're not very good at that. Yeah, when we started the project, so the uh, the biggest and probably most advanced broccoli breeding program in the world is at Sakata Seed Company, and they didn't feel they needed our help, which was probably accurate, but they did feel that the market that we had identified was one that they were interested in. So they have been going great guns, and in fact, a variety that they came out with just a few years ago called Eastern Crown now completely dominates in the East. It is by far the most common variety grown. And it's very good. It's big, solid, high-yielder, really tolerant. We had conditions tough enough here in Geneva this year that we have some ugly eastern crown in the field at this moment. So we can, we can even beat that one up. But it's a literally solid variety and it's got pretty impressive heat tolerance. So that is one of the come through but there are other varieties that have come out in the meantime from other seed companies that also have quite good heat tolerance and we have breeding lines that haven't been released but they're in that stage where the seed companies are trying to decide whether the market is going to be big enough for that hybrid to justify a release so there's about four in that stage and then there's seed companies that really don't have much of a presence in the eastern market but had some material that they thought was interesting it grows well say in taiwan or thailand or some hot place And, and some of them actually look like they have potential so there's some others that are coming out so there's stuff that will work now and there is better stuff on the way so i think that is pretty good news But on the marketing end, so one of the challenges I said, year-round production is necessary to keep access to your wholesale market. They don't like switching back and forth very much. So once you lose your customer, they'll stay with whoever you lost them to. So getting distributors who can source from many different places in order to supply their institutional or, or supermarket customers. That's something that needs to be developed, and universities can be encouraging, but really can't be super intimately involved with that. That's a very cutthroat business that's very relationship based. So we don't have a, a really well-defined place in that, but it's still happening. We identify market gaps where we say this this thing looks like it should be profitable. Somebody should be able to serve this market and there's nobody there. And so some business person says, oh, I'm good at that. Why don't I take a look? So we have had that influence. But the other thing is also quality and price because broccoli is kind of a commodity vegetable. And so you really end up having to compete with Mexico and California on both price and quality. And that is a challenge. Certainly for here, but I think even Chicago is actually closer to Mexican production than it is to the California production. So Mexican broccoli does not come from far away. <laughs> and so it's. Do you mean geographically,
1: Chicago? Geographically, yes. Fewer, it's
2: fewer miles from Guanajuato than it is from okay. Salinas. So you know, they're right here. It's not some distant producer. And it's the same companies growing it. So it's really an integrated North American market. And in the summertime, there's also a fair bit of production in Quebec and Ontario. Uh, that is not to be ignored if you're marketing in in the northern part of the U.S. So there are other producers. You you just have to keep up with them. And it can be hard to match on price. So having post-harvest cooling, you're harvesting in a warm season, you have to get it cold right away. So it's not difficult to spend half a million dollars so that you can deliver cold broccoli to your customer. Well, it takes quite a lot of broccoli to (laughs) make that pay off. And we've looked a little bit at through what's the value of local, because that's something that we can sell. And it's valued by a lot of customers. And if you have something like tomatoes or melon, it's really easy to beat those on quality. Beat the commodity tomato or the commodity melon. You can beat that on quality with a local product. That's not too hard. You're closer. You can let it get riper. You can use varieties that really suit your customers. better. That's easy to do. Broccoli people don't appreciate the difference very much. I can tell the difference. I like the really fresh broccoli. It's much more interesting. The texture's better. I know the difference. And I can persuade people one-on-one that there's a quality difference. But getting that through to wholesale buyers or even to supermarket buyers, that is really tough. So you really have to be able to make money at the wholesale price of California in your markets. With transportation these days, it's a lot more than the price their California growers are getting paid that's really the challenge so you you have to be good at it to be successful there's no question
0: yeah i think it's true there isn't that much of a a flavor difference or a quality difference and broccoli is so hard to grow (laughs) compared (laughs) to certain other things i feel like i'm regularly having conversations with farmers where just like why do we keep doing this like broccoli is so much a part of what we do and the biggest headache any of the crops that we yeah. grow but we just keep doing it because like i don't know it seems like at least in the midwest i don't know people just like have some sort of allegiance to broccoli that yeah. that's quite explain.
2: well cauliflower is more trouble if yes. you want an alternative that's more trouble it's right <laughs> that's there true. Yeah. that's true i mean finding the season for it so even though we have more heat tolerance in the current varieties just finding the right window for harvest is hard. So when the conditions are good in the fall, it's in most of the east, it's a relatively short time period, two or three weeks between being too hot and being too cold because the temperature drops so fast. And having a marketing window that's that short for something like broccoli is yeah hard hard to maintain in the market. So that's why we've really been looking at right on the Atlantic Ocean or up at higher elevations in the east as two places where you can extend the season ocean moderates the temperature i think you can do that with some of the great lakes as well and in the mountains you can move up and down 1500 feet over just a few miles gives you a lot of extension of the season
3: natalie i want to add to what he mentioned that his contribution on his project to the east coast broccoli industry is huge where we interact with Tom's project is that whatever sessions or whatever lines, whatever varieties he chooses for the east coast we're going to add one more layer of assessment to see if they are resistant have any kind of tolerance to Alternaria. In addition, we also added regional varieties, which some of our growers suggested.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And we're doing the same. we based on the two of you <laughs> and your suggestions. We're trialing all this broccoli in Minnesota, both to screen it for tolerance to Alternaria and black rot, and just to see what does well here. So it's kind of cool that we're all trying the same things all across the country in a kind of slightly different climate. So to pull the conversation together, wrap up. I am curious just to hear from the three of you, like just a couple of takeaways that you think farmers should know as they're wrapping up this season, starting to think about next
3: season. I can start. Some of the uh, important things which we can do that can manage alternaria, one of them is once you're done with your crop, don't leave a residue in the field. Do a good disposal or you can actually bury your crop in the ground, and that can help in the deterioration of the crop as well as it will also reduce the property of the property for survival. That's one thing. Second thing, in Georgia, we rely a lot on water irrigation. And what I have seen in those growers who rely on water irrigation, they tend to have more alternaria and impactor problems compared to those who rely on drip irrigation. And in terms of fungicides, I would be very skeptical using QOIs or group 11 fungicides for alternaria management. I would rotate my chemistries, talk to our extension specialists to get some recommendations. I cannot give recommendations beyond my state. But for my state, what we recommend is stay with group 7s and group 3s and group 9s and premixes, but stay away from group 11s.
1: I was going to say the same thing about like this time of year, I'm like, encouraging growers not to leave their brassica residues standing in the field. It can be hard because especially something like Brussels sprouts that you might be picking until the ground is frozen, but even if you can like mow them to get them starting to decompose. And then I always recommend them to grow whatever varieties Thomas is saying to grow (laughs) (laughs) lately.
0: One follow-up question, and this might be a different answer in different states because your climates are different, but are you recommending any preventative kind of newer like biocontrol type products for alternaria or black rot? Or are you just doing fungicide sprays once you're seeing a problem?
3: In terms of black rod, we did some work with the biologicals and we have seen variability in their efficacy. It's not consistent and it's not consistent season to season, year to year, field to field. So I would say there is no silver bullet in, with, with respect to biologicals. But recently, there's some work done with one of the product, which is a plant defense inducer, it's called Lee. It's a methyl salicylate, and along with I think, Bt, it has a, methyl salicylate and Bt together against lipidopterans. So it does a decent job if you apply the early in the season for Georgia growers. Our growers, they use leaf in brassicas, and they do see some help, not a whole lot of help, but some help in conjunction with them, when they use copper and pansy. The one important thing with black blackout and copper, we do not see a lot of copper tolerance strains in this neck mm-hmm. on in in Xanthomonas campuses campestries. Whereas in terms of baccal-spot and solanaceous crops, we do have copper tolerance, but in black rot, copper still responds, and it responds better when you when we tank mix with manze compared to when we just use solo copper. Another caution with the use of copper is that you have to be very careful with use of copper in brassica; they're very sensitive. If you go a bit higher than your label rate, you will have a 40% With respect to uh, alternaria and and biocontrol, I think we have not done any work yet. But there is an opportunity where uh, we're going to use some of the software products this year to find some of the things which we can do for our organic commercial.
1: I'll say that there's a group of Northeast Regional Extension folks and this year we are working together to trial some products in the field and in the past we've looked at some and i'll say yeah i work with a lot of organic growers so managing alternaria and black rot together has been the norm here and the copper alone doesn't seem to work and the biological or other omri approved products don't seem to work alone so we're looking at them in combinations and one combination that has shown promise in other systems is using a bacillus-based biofungicide with copper. Um, so it has that sort of antibacterial uh, mode of action as well as the copper. So we're looking at that in a couple of different states on a couple of different crops, including
2: broccoli this year, too early to till. It seems like with biologicals that there's potential for them to be quite effective on soil-borne pathogens, whether from competition or suppression, building up a large enough population of them in the soil to suppress. And In principle, that should work. I don't know that there's a system developed yet where it's been demonstrated to be helpful, but I remain hopeful that we will... Get one that goes there. Some of the biologicals really grow a lot on your crop or on your cover crop. So um, the population builds up a lot more than what than the inoculum that you would provide out of a bag.
0: So soon they will work.
2: Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're starting to learn a lot more about how the microbiome is working there. I think of broccoli sort of like the dragster of crops. It really has to be going full blast from transplant to harvest. And typically in this climate, that's about 55 days. It's not very long. It needs enough nitrogen. It uses like 150 pounds. It's not an unreasonable number. Most of that in about four or five weeks. That's sucking up the nitrogen faster than corn. (laughs) It's, It's really a lot. And then you need it to stop and slow down a little. So this is a challenge. But thinking about that, It's really pedal to the metal up until the last week, and then you're just easing off a little bit so that it doesn't blast through maturity or give you hollow stem. But where is that nitrogen? Some of it's in the soil, a lot of it is in the plants. So this idea of mowing the plants and incorporating them into the soil is really important for sanitation, but it's also really important for your nitrogen cycle because this is all organic nitrogen and it's a lot. So getting that back into your system is important and having it not decomposed and get washed away during the winter if you have places where the ground gets saturated. So getting a cover crop, oats, rice, whatever works for you, but one of the fall cover crops to take up that nitrogen right away is really helpful for keeping it in the system and continuing to get the breakdown because you really want that rocker to break down with all of the pathogens and things that could be on it. All of this happens very fast. <laughs> it grows fast, it matures fast, it passes through harvestable stage fast, and it needs to die and decompose fast. So drag stir.
0: Finger points. Sue, did you have any other things you wanted to wrap up with? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. One thing that I take away from this conversation is it does feel like broccoli is becoming harder and harder to grow with increasingly unpredictable weather, diseases, flea beetles that are we typically think of them as a spring problem, destroying broccoli heads in September. But it's exciting to see so much work going on on broccoli. So that makes me feel
2: hopeful. Well, the demand is certainly staying high. It's high and it continues to grow. We have more broccoli eaters every year and we have broccoli eaters eating more every year. So if you can find a market that's particularly interested, a local market, in New York, there's a program that really heavily encourages schools to buy local vegetables. And broccoli florets are one of the easiest things for them to use. Little kids like it. I'll pretend that it's otherwise, but little kids like eating broccoli. (laughs) don't boil it to death and it's fine. So finding markets like that where a lot of things come together and also sometimes there's excess capacity in uh, processing or cooling. If you have refrigeration at an apple storage plant, they're empty in the summertime, you can cool broccoli there and little opportunities like that can make a big difference financially.
0: Well, thank you all so much. This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. We're a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. And we're sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. So this is the last episode of the season. Thank you so much to those of you who have listened along all summer or for those of you who are here for the first time as well. And thank you to our guests for great conversation. So have a great week, everyone. Thank you so much for being a part of our show this year.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for putting this on. Really appreciate the opportunity.